Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who... Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And now, today on the show, someone that really kickstarted the genre and changed it too in a major way. Joey Shithead Keithley from DOA, from the Skulls and and from inventing touring. But more on that in a second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and an Instagram page and uh, a Facebook page are all run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all your help on this thing, buddy. I love you so much. Um, and he'll get the message to me if you send him a message and, and we can communicate that way. You can also find me on various forms of social media at Leftford Damien. If you'd like to support this podcast, the best way of doing that, tell all your friends about it. Let everyone know, uh, know that you like this thing and that we're doing this thing and, and spread the word that way. You can also subscribe to it and rate it. And, and we have a Patreon page with bonus content over there that you can support that too, if you choose to. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who have agreed to come on board and sponsor this thing again. So I don't have to do it out of my pocket. And so we can, uh, you know, keep, keep going, keep that, make, putting out all these episodes. We're got, we're up to like two episodes a week. On average, you know, there were some weeks where I'd have no episodes, as you know, and now we're up to two, uh, some weeks I had, last week I had three, three episodes last week. Oh my gosh. It's a, it's a lot, of, a lot of sitting at my desk, listening to myself talk. Um, but I appreciate all of you that, that support this podcast and, and thank you. Um, all right. Well, I guess we're still doing what we were doing last time we spoke. I'm pretty sure. So let's just move on to today's episode today on the show. A goddamn legend. I would say that this guy, if there was a Canadian music rock and roll hall of fame, and there is, there is, but, and it's a, it's a grave injustice that this, uh, gentleman and his band have not been put in there yet. Today, we are going to be talking with and to Joey Keithley, AKA Joey shithead of the band DOA. Now DOA put up the titular first hardcore record in hardcore 81, uh, not the first hardcore record sound wise, but they, they got the name. They put that name right on the cover. We got that story coming up later on, but also they're the band that invented touring. You talk to everyone, uh, from black flag, uh, you know, black flag and around that kind of circle. DOA is the band that brought this idea of hopping in a van, booking shows, collecting phone numbers, and just kind of like putting your own tour together. They're the band that kind of conceived this whole thing. So, Oh, a lot, a lot to get into today on the show. Uh, the audio, we had some audio issues. You'll hear them. Uh, but you know what? This is punk. It's meant to sound rough sometimes. We listen to practice tapes. We listen to boombox practice tapes for uh, historical importance. So this sounds better than that. Trust me. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, got some got some issues. I tried, I tried my best. I tried my best with it. But, um, but that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. I don't think there's any notes to get to. Uh, sit back. Relax and enjoy Joey Shithead on Turned Out a Punk. Joey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Uh, nice to nice to be talking with you. Well, as I was just telling you, literally 
a second ago off air that, yeah, like I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing for a living without you, but not just me. I think everyone, and this isn't just me saying this, this has been reiterated by many guests that have come on the show over the years. None of us would be doing it without you guys. So thank you so much for everything you've done. And we're going to get to to all of that, but I got to start this off the way I start them all off, which is Joey. Yep. How'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, I think we saw like uh, a broadcast of uh, The Damned. It was on TV, like ABC Television, like an American station, and um, <clears throat> and uh, there was a, they only played twenty minutes, and then uh, the fans all ripped out the ceiling tiles. You know, the sort of like. Uh, white ceiling tiles you see at like universities type cafeterias or whatever mm-hmm. uh and having a great time and i saw that i thought wow i'd really like to do that that looks like fun <laughs> <laughs> went, this looks crazy right so yeah that was it i think that was the first thing and right around the same time too we saw ads uh for the ramones first album mm-hmm. and um and the ad read the most unusual album in six years i don't know how why why didn't they say twenty or something like that? But they said the most unusual in six years. And my old drummer uh, did what uh, rest his soul. Um, he bought the album home, and we were like, "Wow, did all the sounds kind of sound the same, don't they?" <laughs> <laughs> and then we got into more detail and went like, "Oh, they're they're not right." But it was like it was the approach that we hadn't had never heard. So those two things happened all simultaneously. Because I mean, at the time, like the. The bands were these horrible bands. Like um, the the biggest band at the time was like Boston. <laughs> You're talking total crap, right? So like, and uh, um, so then we heard this, like, wow. And then and we all, we also went, wow, it's really fast too, right? You know when you you know it's it's heavy. It's Ramones, which are like one of the my three top bands of all time. <laughs> um, but you know when you listen to it now, you're like, okay, well it's not really fast at all. It's really medium. Right, so like, the, the impression the impression was okay. These guys are out of control, right? And uh, bizarre, and uh, it was really cool. And then, yeah, so that, that was how I got into it. What was the stuff you were listening to like locally around that time? Like, what were some of the bands having? There's like that crazy. I'm trying to remember the name. You had Wicked album covers, like a rockabilly kind of guy in Vancouver. I know around that time that was kind of popular. Yeah, I don't know. The local scene was not, um, we didn't know that much about it, like, because we, we just lived out in the suburbs out mm-hmm. in Burnaby. And uh, uh, the big bands, I mean, were like um, Led Zeppelin and, as I say, Boston. Um, and then, but in high school, then uh, we got into like Black Sabbath and we went like, you know, like what we put that on went like, whoa, this is like way too heavy, right? <laughs> it, it, it blew away all this other crap that we were listening to, right? And, uh, uh, you know, probably at the, the time, too, right? I was also, like, grew up, like, um, we'll probably get into this later, but also grew up listening to a lot, a lot of folk music, too, right? So <clears throat> I had a, a variety of different influences. Yeah, like, where'd you kind of go with this, you know, newfound knowledge of these these bands? Like, you, you know, you heard the Ramones now, and you've seen the damn footage. Like, where did you guys kind of go to pursue this thread? Yeah, well, we... The, Heard the Ramones, we saw the album, and then uh, what the real catalyst for the entire scene in Vancouver. So I think this was like uh, early early seventy seven, mm-hmm. or maybe late late seventy six. No, early seventy six or something like that, right? Um, maybe seventy seven. I can't remember. Anyways, um, that the Ramones came to town and they played this place called the Commodore Ballroom. You guys have probably played there or seen shows there. 
and um, <clears throat> you know, about twelve hundred people. And then it turned out they they sold less than a hundred tickets. So they got on the radio and they were going to lose their shirt on you know not selling alcohol at the bar bar type thing. So they made the show a free show, or maybe they sold five <laughs> yeah, tickets, yeah. right? So about a hundred of us went to the show in this huge ballroom, right? And uh, Lude from Seattle opened up. They were strange, but good. Uh, and then uh, the Rones, Rones came on. And I think they played the first album, like, from start to finish. Like, the, the whole show was, like, 30 minutes. And it was, like, over. And we were, like... But it was so insane. But we all went the visual artists and musical artists and <clears throat> wannabe punk rockers or people that were into Black Sabbath or whatever. Um, Some went, like, oh. Oh, so that's what punk rock is. And we went, okay, there's the book. Uh, take this and write your own chapter type thing, right? So mm-hmm. that was the, the, the callus. And we went, okay. So then we started a band um, called The Skulls. Um, you know, not to be confused with The Skulls from L.A. But, uh, and that's how we got going. And, you know, we had about seven originals. And we would also cover, like, Iggy Pop and The Damned, of course, and uh, stuff like that, right? So. You mentioned seeing the lewd. Like, what was your take on that band? You said they were a little weird. What was their vibe at that point? Because they moved down to San Francisco, right? A few years later, I think. Or yeah, they set up in uh, Seattle. Then they moved to SF later on, right? Um, like kind of um, a little bit on the artsy side, right? And uh, and we also later the Skulls uh, played this crazy uh, three hundred. Uh, Satan's Angels before we had Hell's Angels out here mm-hmm. and their Hanger Honors. So we were the entertainment. And, Holy. uh, oh, yeah, no, it was not control. We played all weekend. We knew 15 songs and we, we played, uh, five, six sets a day and we just put the same 15 songs in a different order and put them over and over again type thing. <laughs> 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 and I, I think, you know, the people at attending it really liked it. Uh, and, um, you know, cause we didn't know covers or anything like that. We just, okay, here's our 15 songs that we know, right? And uh, But the lute played, and, uh, you know, and Sats, the singer, you know, he had a bit of um, a feminine look, shall we say, and um, uh, the bikers didn't take to this, and they they played one set, and they chased them across this, like, cow pasture, and they're in their van driving across the cow pasture with all these bikers showing bottles at their van. It was like oh. it was out of it was out of control. We were standing there watching, right? So they left. So they bailed after one day, and uh, so we were the entertainment. So we just played those fifteen songs over and over again, right? So yeah, <laughs> oh <my. laughs> that was that was basically our first show. Right, was playing for these guys, right? So. That's amazing. Well, so was were like those guys like into the scene? Was it just by random that they picked your two bands? Like, how did you guys wind up playing this? This, you know, yeah, it was like strange. Um, well, I had one uh, one friend that was sort of a uh, like um, Satan's Angels uh, hanger on, or like a guy Al Al Pieman, we called him, and and uh, he he helped a lot with the DOA. But he says, oh, you know, they're having this thing, and. Uh, They'll give you 200 bucks a day if you play this and all the beer you can drink. We went, 200 bucks? That's insane. We never heard that kind of money. <laughs> you know, you know, and we had another sort of high school rock band where, you know, we never got paid for anything type thing. We we're horrible and all that type of stuff, right? And uh, um, so just uh, the sergeant in arms came to see us. I guess we played at the Japanese Hall, which was the banker's home at Punk Rock, um, uh, right down the waterfront near Maine and Hastings. And, uh, so that was actually the first gig. We opened up for um, the 
the Furies, yeah, they're Vancouver's first punk rock band. So they're they're the first punk rock band in BC. Uh, the Distrags from Victoria uh, were the second, and then the Skulls were us uh, were the third, right? So, so we warmed our way onto this show with the uh, the Furies, and that's where the um, one of the head biker guys came on and saw us. Yeah, oh, that's good. Okay, we'll see you guys uh, Saturday out out in Matsqui, in the out in the valley outside of Vancouver. Anyway, so. Yeah, they just started with that. They just thought we were kind of outrageous and like uh, crazy, and they went, "Yeah, okay, these guys are good, hire them type thing." And uh, when we got to the, um, got out there to play, they said, oh, "Okay, well, all the beer you can drink." So I went down to the clubhouse and um, they said, "Ah, oh, I'm from the band. I need some beer." And the guy behind the bar was just massive. Like everybody there was massive. Like I'm a tall guy. Yeah, I was like short. Like, <laughs> Big, big fucking guys, right? And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, he's just, it's two bucks a beer, kid. I go, no, no, they said, uh, uh, said we have all the beer we want for free. He said, it's two bucks a beer, you little puke. Like, <laughs> and, and and I said, no, no, no. He said we can have all the beer. And then he laughed. He was just testing me to see if I would buckle. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that didn't, right? So, and uh, yeah, it was a crazy weekend. Uh, Wimpy spent most of the time, uh, because uh, he had too many beers, that he he'd pass out on the stage, but he was still with his bass on his stomach, like still plugged in. Yeah, and then uh, we'd wake him up and play another set of these fifteen songs, right? So, <laughs> wow, that's a, a hell of a way to start off a career. I think it's all. <laughs> well, we knew it was going to be good, right? And yeah, absolutely. I had uh, I I wore my boots out, and one of them fell apart, so I walked around the whole weekend with one boot and one bare foot, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> were like were the, like that band Sparkling Apple. Were they kind of like more that kind of scene? Yeah, they were like. But I'm surprised they didn't play that. They were like uh, when we were like in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we snuck into a pub uh, to go see those guys because they were like kind of like they had a few originals and um, they it played lots of covers. So they played the local bar and we snuck in to see them because they were kind of like the, you know a hard rock band before punk rock came along. Mm-hmm. You know, but they, you know they had some attitude and they were like really. Uh, Funny, and the, the lead singer Captain Maniac was hilarious, and the guitar player's name was uh, Buzz Constantly, which to me is still one of the great uh, <laughs> names game. you could have. Right? Like, uh, <laughs> I don't know whatever happened to those guys, but they played the circuit for like a long time, right? And, uh, yeah. Well, they put up yeah. records later on, right? They did like two twelve inches and a seven inch, I think. Yeah, I think the the seven inch was we're only here for the beer. Yes, <laughs> that was kind of their their underground hit, and everybody who was kind of into rock um, knew knew about this, right? And the, there was other weird underground bands like uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name is uh, oh, it'll come to me anyways. But and they would set up uh, trailers like get a flatbed and uh, set up on Murray Mountain or go. To the to a B and in Stanley Park and just have generators and a, a flatbed and they're trying to get known. These bands would play and they're like you know sort of like just the precursor to punk rock, mm-hmm. you know, which was like totally different than in England. You had the kind of uh, the pub rock like Doctor Feelgood and stuff like that was kind of the the setup before the the Pistols came along type thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the, in the Northwest, I guess a little bit further down in, in the U.S., you've got yeah. you know the Whalers and you've got the Sonics too, right? So I guess it's yeah, it's always been that energy. Well, the Sonics, yeah. What it, I don't know, I'm not really familiar with the Whalers, but the Sonics are an incredible band. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, what a great catalog of songs and just like it's pretty well punk rock, right? If you ask me, and, you know. And the, at the same time, too, the other stuff we kind of heard those floating around. They were 
I wouldn't really call them punk, but they were kind of precursor was like the dictators. Is a bit garagey. I mean, later on, their records got really a little bit too produced, but the early stuff was like really raw. Yeah, no, it's 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 funny because like you know, there's this moment where it all kind of comes together, and I guess it's you know seventy around like let's late seventies, but you know, like you're saying in the pub rock scene and the the garage rock in the Pacific Northwest, like there is that kind of energy that's existing, you know, and and it just finally gets tapped into. Yeah, no, it it was great. It was just a, a funny uh, thing, and then all the show, early shows that we did because there there weren't very many punk rock bands, so we would do these things where we'd get the local reggae band, uh, uh, we'd get like an experimental band, and uh, and a visual artist, and then we'd play. And those were what the early shows in Vancouver were like. They were great because it wasn't like you know. I mean, hey, if you want like one type of music, you, yeah, sure, I I get it. People want to hear that kind of music, but. It was more like an experience in, in a sense that all these like miscreants and artists and uh, never never do wells uh, <laughs> all all fifty of us uh, gathered in one spot at these like community halls and stuff like that. Yeah, it's and it's I guess it's pre codified, you know, like it's all these people that are just brought together by being freaks, not necessarily because they liked a certain type of Sonic. Yeah, and they did. They just went like uh, wow, and they thought the punk rock it was just like. Well, this is like really crazy because at that point, you know, everybody was, you know, starting to hear about hear about the Ramones and the Richard Hell and the Voidoids and television and um, uh, Talking Heads, that kind of scene coming out of uh, New York City, and you know, and the London scene wasn't far behind, but the New York one had like a bigger influence, mm-hmm. um, you know, and you know, and that trailed on that took a cue from like Lou Reed and stuff like that too, of course, right? So. Um, so just anybody thought, okay, this is a gathering of freaks or like people that are different uh, than – because rock and roll at that point, to me, was so predictable. Um, I mean, I was in the early part of high school when the, the countercultural type stuff happened uh, with, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Country Joe McDonald and stuff like that. And uh, to me, that was like out of control type stuff in you know, 68, 69, 70. Um, you know, it was all like really uh, – it really had political conscience because it was all anti-Vietnam War stuff. And um, and that's really what got me into heavy music and partly got me into politics and stuff like that was hearing that. And then by the time I got to high school, then, you know, it was pretty smoothed out. So you had bands like, you know, I don't know, like Boston, Prism, like for a local example, Vancouver band, um, Fleetwood Mac. It was a really rock had become completely corporate. So when you heard these like weird bands from New York and London and, you know, some other parts of the States and Canada, and they went like, wow, okay, this is really what rock is supposed to be because it, it rock had lost what it was. Yeah, definitely. No. And it, I guess prior to the Ramones had any other bands kind of come through, like had, had, um, I guess, uh, Patty Smith come through or, or anything like that. Or no, something? but every, we knew about, we knew about Iggy pop and we knew about, uh, when we heard Iggy pop, we were like in high school and we we're like, wow. You know, there was a magazine at the local convenience store, like, uh, Kerrang or something like that. And I picture Iggy pop on the stage and it said, Iggy pop man or worm. <laughs> <laughs> And we picked up this magazine. We just all, we were like so intrigued, and we just all pissed ourselves laughing too. Right? Like, yeah, that's right, you know. And we go, oh, we got to find out who this guy is, right? So now we're in like grade ten, eleven, or something like that, right? And in, in high school, and um, 
Yeah, but I guess he popped the point there, but we weren't hip enough to know that he was there. We mm-hmm. didn't know. We were just lived out in the burbs, right? So, you know, we are too busy uh, wondering about when the next Deep Purple concert was. <laughs> <laughs> so how f- long after had you played this, you know, the, the, uh, the, the biker rally, um, did the scene really start forming? You know, there's the three bands between Victoria and Vancouver. Like, how long before yeah. everything started really bubbling up? Well, it's, we left. We the skulls. We moved out to Toronto. Yeah, uh, like I've got to ask you about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and we we only stayed for like four months, and then you know, played a, you know half dozen shows or whatever. Uh, but when we came back, uh, the scene was really taken off, right? And we we're going like, wow, there's a bunch of bands, and they're playing at the Smiling Buddha and a few other halls and stuff like that. And uh, um, but it was really dead before that. I mean, you. To get 50 people at a show, you were doing well. And, uh, you know, we even made up, uh, we didn't have a support band. So one show I remember we did before we left for Toronto was uh, we formed this band called the Victorian Pork. And um, I played played drums. My nickname was Flop Jiggle. And uh, Dimwit played bass. Dimwit played guitar and Wimpy played bass. And uh, this other guy, Dave Noga, sang. And we were like, the opening band for the skulls because we couldn't <laughs> find another band. Right. So is that how anyway. Rude Norton kind of came to be? And, and those sort of bands that are on the Bud Lux for comp? Yeah, that was sort of the initial, because we just go, okay, these are not real bands. They're called fuck bands. So it's like Rude Norton was Nick Jones from the point of sticks and wimpy and dimwit. And they had uh Randy uh, rampage had one was um, Sergeant Nick penis and the brass ball <laughs> battalion. Right. Yeah. Him and him and Zippy, uh, that was their thing. And uh, uh, we had another one, me, Simon Wilde, and Dimwit. It was a box that was covered, and we called it Death on Eight Legs. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and we just play the boot up because people, you'd be going to see, okay, you're going to see the subhumans of DOA this weekend, or maybe the Point Sticks. Um, so you need to see some other bands. Mm-hmm. And it got pretty creative because it actually, you know, um, because it was such a, in, in a lot of ways, musically, that male-dominated thing that a lot of the girls involved in the scene, they started forming their own bands and got a chance to get up there and play. So it was actually a pretty cool um, thing. It's just like there was no real rules. Just get up there and see what you can play. Sometimes it was good and sometimes it was terrible, right? So Yeah, a lot of those bands on that comp, like, you know, you wish they did more. Like, on the two, there's two volumes of it, I think. That's the only way I've Yeah. Heard. Yeah, Bud Lusford, a really good guy. Um, he was sort of like, sort of trying to present himself as a um, promoter extraordinaire, which, you know, he's really just another broke guy <laughs> hanging around the scene, right? You know, yeah. uh, who couldn't pay for anything. But yeah, both those comps are really good, especially the first one's really good. It's mm-hmm. great. So I guess going back to moving to Toronto, what was it like? Like, what were your impressions coming to Toronto? And what was the scene like when you guys got here around that time? Yeah, well, we had read about um, the uh, scene with the diodes. You know, the, the diode single was out, mm-hmm. uh, Red Rubber Ball. And then uh, I'm pretty sure the Teenage Head um, song that was on the radio. I can't remember what it was, but that was Picture My Face 7-inch, maybe? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, like the one kind of FM, maybe they had a few, but uh, out west they just really had one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I know they're from Hamilton, right? But it's like pretty close, right? Uh, oh, yeah, it's part of the scene. Yeah, so we uh, got out there because we thought, oh, there's this great punk rock scene, um, the, you know, the Ontario art space. And by the time we got out there, of course, they've been closed. Like it always <laughs> happens to punk rock clubs. By the time you get there, they're closed, right? So, yeah. Um, except for a few. 
And uh, we got out there, and we didn't uh, we didn't know anybody, but we sort of just wandered around and found some, you know, like our old manager used to say, um, because we never we go to on tours, and we wouldn't have directions where the show was, and the and uh, me and Randy would go like, well, where the hell's the gig? And he goes, and our manager would go, well, just drive around till you see some punks and ask them. Both <laughs> of ask a punk. Ask the punks. They should know where the show is. Thing, right? Look for a guy with a mohawk, right? You know. And uh, so we just uh, kind of walked around Toronto and looked for the punks, and we found them. And uh, you know, like went to the hung out at the Beverly Tavern, and then we found uh, Club David, um, Mm -hmm. which uh, became pals with the guys from uh, the Ugly, uh, and that. And um, of course, we played with the Vile Tones probably once there, but saw them like three or four times down there, right? And and also played the the Shock Theater as well. Was it like really, you know, obviously stuff in Vancouver isn't really going, but I guess comparing Vancouver when stuff really gets going to Toronto, I'm always like amazed at how many bands there were in Vancouver and just sort of the drive, like to put out records and just seems like Toronto was different. Like in Toronto, it just seems like a lot more maybe artier. I don't know. It just doesn't seem as, as driven to do that stuff. Yeah, I think um, the difference was, I mean, the Toronto scene was more advanced, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that there was more bands, there's more places to play. There was more of an audience. Say, if you went to like a Volatone show, you know, uh, a reasonable number of people would show up, right? You know, and um, <clears throat> you know, and, and they played a lot, but they were like the sort of happening uh, band at the time uh, in Toronto, right? And mm. and the Ugly were good. Were, ugly were great. We really liked those guys. Got on with them, and but I think in the Vancouver, what happened there, um, like especially after like uh, I got back there, I, I'm not taking credit for this, but uh, when I got back to Vancouver. In about February um, 1978, God, am I saying is that that long ago? <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> uh, 42 years ago, right? So um, then I put on ad uh, and got DOA going, right? But <clears throat> I think what happened in Vancouver that there was a, a couple of labels that really took an interest. Yeah. Like we'd had some label interest when we were out in uh, in Toronto, and then I think they just deemed that we weren't. Uh, commercial enough, and uh, you know, one of the first guys we met, I think he was working for a label, was National Slash, and he came around to our practice space and listened to us. And was I don't think it was really his decision, but the guy, the A and R guy, went like, oh, I don't know about these guys type thing, right? Mm-hmm. And pretty, pretty rough and ready or whatever, right? And uh, um, pretty rough, but not ready enough, I guess was probably what they thought. Right? So, <laughs> and. Uh, um, but there were a couple of little labels that started out in Vancouver and the other thing that what really was a catalyst, there was a TV station and this guy by the name of Shane Lunny, he got in there and he got all the bands to do a video. He would bring them in at midnight, get the crew there, get all the cameras in a TV studio and shoot a video. So all of a sudden everybody had a video, right? That, you know, when kind of even before people were making videos, you know, you're just starting to see, uh, maybe Devo had a video out at that point And, uh, um, a couple other bands and MTV started taking off and there was little cable stations uh, were uh, really like a big access for Canadians uh, to see, uh, um, see this kind of new type of music. And, uh, and we had a really good one out in Vancouver that, you know, Friday night at 12 o'clock, I think it was a show called night dreams N I T E D R E E M S something ridiculous like that. Right. But yeah, it was, it was a, uh, a catalyst that everybody kept watching. Like, ah, oh, did you see that last night? That was great. And then you you see people down at the boot on a Saturday night uh, after that. And it was like, 
uh, it got going. And I think the other thing, too, um, being such a backwater that Vancouver was, um, <clears throat> we, we kind of realized uh, in, in DOA once we got going that uh, we're never going to get – I think Chuck, Randy, and I, we sat down after one practice, and we were starting to get a little bit of a fan base. But the three of us said, you Presley sat down, you know what? And we said, you know what? Everybody hates us. We'll never get a record deal, and we're going nowhere. That was our conclusion, right, after about a solid two months of rock and roll. <laughs> the grizzled veterans, right? And yeah. and, uh, um, and uh, we went, yeah, we're never going to get a deal um, from a record label in Toronto or L.A. or New York or whatever, that kind of, or London. So, but I'd seen this hippie band when I was going to SFU to become a lawyer, which I obviously never became a lawyer, right? I was going to be a civil rights lawyer. And, um, uh, but they was called the Pied Pumpkin String Ensemble. <laughs> what a name. Yeah, yeah. And they're really good. The people in the band uh, became quite famous around BC and they're uh, still playing today and stuff like that. And uh, um, But they had their own records. That they, uh-huh. yeah, I, was, I, I was a student, so I went up to SFU to see the show. And it was like five bucks for an LP. And I went like, what? They're making their own records. And I went like, huh. Well, maybe it isn't that hard. So then I found there was a little pressing plant in Vancouver. And I went down there, talked to the guy. Okay, this is what it costs. I mean, I got turned down by the first guy. Uh, so I thought we could do it. So we recorded the Disco Sucks 7-inch, um, right? The four mm-hmm. songs. <clears throat> and I wanted to make some, some cassettes. And the first place I went to was called uh, PTL Records. And, um, and I played it, and the guy listened to it. And went, oh, no, no, we can't make this. Because it turned out PTL was praise the Lord. And the, <laughs> the guy listened to the beginning just the sex. Oh, no, 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 we can't make this, right? <laughs> so I kind of went, oh, fuck you, right, type thing, right? And walked out. And I found this uh, pressing plant in Vancouver. And uh, they did it. And then we just started mailing it out. So I get, this is a really long ways of saying that. Um, this is perfect. This is, what this, this is the bread and butter of this podcast. So do not worry. This is awesome. Okay, so then uh, the catalyst was that we had these singles, right? And we made 500 singles, it just goes sucks. And we started taking them to local stores. I drove them around and sold them for a buck each, and the stores sold them for like a buck 25. And uh, I thought, this is great. And we were making 25 cents profit on every single. It was really good. We're going to be millionaires in no time, right? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, But I started mailing them everywhere, right? I didn't have money. I, I was like, so we were so broke. It was just ridiculous. Like, you know, you're talking like living on potatoes, crop dinner type thing, uh, you know, whatever. And uh, I, that we, I would go to the local record store and just take a notepad and right look in the back of Kerrang or some magazine like that, um, uh, Cream Magazine. And they have these ads, you know, for clubs and radio stations. So I'd write down the address. I wouldn't buy the magazine, of course. I didn't have money for that. And so then I'd mail them a single, and the, the, I'd write a handwritten note. It's like, hi, we're a punk rock band from Vancouver, Canada. Uh, can we come and play in your town? And there would be a Disco suck single inside of it, right? Yeah. And who knows how many got there without breaking? I have no idea, right? So uh, but I probably mailed about 100 of these things out, and then we started getting responses. And they're like, wow, okay. And then uh, so this was – what really long way of saying because we were adventurous and started traveling, I think that also kind of got the the word about the Vancouver scene out really quickly because other bands like the Point of Sticks and the Subhumans 
one like, oh, well, DOA can do it. We're just as good as those guys are better, whatever they thought, right? <laughs> We're going to do it too. And they started traveling up and down the West Coast, right? So like, which we kind of determined that was easier than going to Toronto because you didn't have the old snow <laughs> and that massive difference in it, distance in the way, right? So Yeah, well, that's still the best tour you can do in a band is that West Coast tour. Yes, it is. There's a lot of uh, great towns, you know, really close together right you're relatively close you know amazing food decent cannabis if you're into that it's a it's a, a great stretch to be on the road for some, sometimes yep and scenery along the coast is great and the weather's great right absolutely so. well like and i guess going back before that you were adventurous i guess as a band going out to toronto like you don't hear about you know you hear about vile tones and teenage head going down to new york to play a show but the idea of like yeah picking up and moving to another city and relocating completely like was that just like you just knew that that's had to be done or were you looking at another band as kind of like an inspiration for that because that's that is adventurous we the original plan was that we were supposed we we're gonna go to toronto because it's okay there's we determined Vancouver was dead. There's nothing happening. It was like way, way too early. So let's move to Toronto. Looks like they've got a good scene there. Stay for a few months. And then we're supposed to move to England. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to move to London and uh, make our way there. And we got these uh, updated passports. Um, like my grandmother was from uh, England. So <clears throat> it turned out I could get a, a passport and stay there uh, without getting like a work permit or anything. You know, not that that would have made much difference. You know, you just were just gone and survived type thing. Yeah. And um, uh, so we got to Toronto and then the impetus to go. So Simon Warner, who uh, later played in the band called The Pack and um, The Straps, I think. The British band, um, The Pack? The English band? Yeah, the, oh, the yeah. English band. The, yeah, so Simon and Jonathan Warner, brothers obviously uh, from Vancouver, <clears throat> so Jonathan was in the original original bass player in the Furies, like the first band out here. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Jim Walker, who was on the first two PIL albums, he was the drummer in the Furies. Oh, right? my gosh. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So then Jimmy uh, moved to England, and they sent us letters to say, hey, I'm in the PIL with Johnny Rotten. And we were like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's pretty good. You've done pretty well, right? Like, you know, and uh, – but anyway, so uh, Jonathan and uh, Simon um, later formed a band after Skulls broke up called The Pack. And I think later called the, another one called The Straps, right? So, yep. And um, uh, Simon, so Simon's a guitar player. It did, I forget where I was going on this. So we were talking about. Um, you said you were planning on going to, to you know, the plan to come to Yeah, Toronto right. Okay. So, okay. So, right. So, to identify the characters. That's, so, Simon, the guitar player, and Wimpy, uh, bassist. Um, Dimwit and I were all supposed to move to London, England from Toronto. And um, and Jerry Hanna, uh, Jerry Useless from Subhumans was there with us too. And he was thinking of going. So then Simon and Wimpy moved to London and me and Dimwit were supposed to follow. The only thing is, is we never followed, right? So those guys were there. Wimpy was in this cold water flat, like a squat. Uh, he hawked his base to get something to eat. <laughs> so like, kind of like uh, that was the end of the skulls. Like me and Dimwit completely screwed up, but we might have done pretty well if we'd gone there, right? But you know, whatever. That that's the choices you make in life, right? So it would have changed music history forever. It would have changed. Uh, yeah, it would. Boy, it would change my life forever, right? So I think it would have changed my life forever, Joey. I think it would have changed all of our lives in a different way if you got if you hadn't moved back and started what you're doing. I think it's also it's funny because like you know we talked about these Toronto bands, but like 
when I think of DOA, I, I definitely think contemporary time-wise bands being, you know, especially when you first start, I mean, being like yep. Direct Action, Young Lions and yep. stuff like that. And it took, it took them all forever to get records out. Like none of them got records out till the late eighties. Yeah. It was like, uh, we just got lucky. I mean, uh, um, we recorded really quickly, like did the EP like in about eight hours, like uh, recording mixing, it was done. The guy had me the tape. I gave him 200 bucks or whatever. Went to the pressing plant and we got some uh, EI, employment insurance. Uh, it used to be called uh, unemployment enjoyment, I think was the old title for it, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, cash those in and went to the pressing plant. That's how we paid for the records. And so, like, once you kind of get, you know, these responses to this record, after you send them out, like, how long after that before you were like, well, let's do this tour? And, like, what was that process? Because, you know, we're still following that route that you guys kind of come up with. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty quick. The, the impetus was San Francisco. That um, So I sent one to uh, the University of San Francisco radio station. And then, like, I can't remember, it was like three weeks later, we got this letter back. And then um, Disco Sucks was number one on their this college chart, you know, of course we didn't realize the difference between college charts and big, huge FM commercial stations and stuff like that. We're like, wow, we're number one on the radio. <laughs> you know, we were like, I mean, we were like rubes, right? So, um, you know, uh, hardworking rubes, but, uh, uh, and, uh, we ended up uh, going like, wow. Okay. So then I phoned up, um, the Mabuhe gardens and said, Hey, uh, uh, we got the number one uh, record on your uh, college station. Uh, can you put on a show for us, right? And uh, Dirk Dirksen, who's the empresario owner of uh, the Mobuhe Gardens, which is like, for everybody's knowledge, uh, is like the equivalent of CBGB's or you know, the 100 Club type thing. Yeah. And um, he said, sure, uh, come on down. I'll pay you on a percentage type thing. And we got a weekend. And uh, uh, it was like crazy. Um, uh, like, we didn't we didn't have a van, uh, so I took a train. Uh, Chuck and Randy um, took a, a Greyhound, and we snuck across the border. And then Brad, our guitar player, Brad Kent, um, he hitchhiked down with his Les Paul. He didn't have a case with Les Paul, so he stood on the side of the I five highway uh, with his thumb out, right right hand out, thumb in a ride, left hand holding the Les Paul. <laughs> so. <laughs> and he was a little bit late. He arrived like 20 minutes before the show. But <laughs> <laughs> we played. And um, uh, I, I, this is the, 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 really the kind of was the catalyst that uh, I had immediately arriving. Okay, so I was walking around San Francisco by myself, and I saw this punk rock-looking guy. And it turned out to be Will Shatter from Flipper. And we immediately were kindred souls and became friends. And, uh, and we went around and... Uh, Spent a couple of days drinking beer before the show and uh, annoyed tourists uh, on the, the on the wharf there and stuff like that. And uh, so anyway, we didn't have gear. We arrived at the show and Dirk Church and he uh, he goes, "Where's your equipment?" I said, "I don't have any." And he looks at me like, "Oh, are all you Canadians just stupid?" <laughs> and <laughs> and I I was so flabbergasted. I went, uh, uh, "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Will managed to, um, he was in a band before Flipper called Negative Trend. So he says, ah, Joe, we got the gear at my place. So we got a cab. So me and Will went in the cab and grabbed all the gear we could that would fit into a cab and threw it in for the show, right? And uh, But the real thing that made DOA in that area was that I, me and Will had been drinking so much beer all day long that in the middle of the show, I took a piss off the stage. 
And this became instant news in, in the San Francisco punk scene, right? And it went a fair ways. You know, I, I really had to, you know, had to go type thing. So, um, and it was like, uh, yeah, it was, uh, people were going, wow, these, because in those days, people go like, punk rock from Canada? How is that possible, right? Because there's like Mounties and Snow and uh, um, hockey players, you know, the, the typical images of uh, Canada that people in America would have, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it went, no, no, we're a real live punk rock band. And um, so that was the first night, um, uh, right, first night with uh, Ray Campy and the Rockabilly Rebels. He was one of their old original Rockabilly guys. Okay. Yeah, and then the next night, tons of people came up, um, and we opened for the Avengers, so we became friends uh-huh. with them. And then the third night, um, the Sunday night, uh, we weren't playing, but we hung around. The Dead Kennedys were playing. And um, <clears throat> I I just went in there, and uh, I snuck in a beer, and then one of the bouncers uh, asked me, uh, oh, you got to take that outside. It was pretty, actually pretty nice. And I kind of I shook it up and opened it up and sprayed it in his face, right? So... <laughs> Uh, so I had four goons throw me out on the sidewalk, and uh, the owner of the club went like, oh, you're 86 forever. You're never coming back, you shithead. You're never coming back type thing. And uh, um, and, uh, and, and but Jello had seen us play. He went, we're not, we're not playing until you let that Joey shithead back in here. We won't play until you let him back in, right? So I, I apologized and promised to be nice, and they let, let me back in. And that's where it um, started the friendship with uh, Jello and all the DKs, right? So Wow, what a, like a, what a weekend, too. You meet Flipper and the Dead Well, negative trend, I guess, at that point, but still. Yeah, and, and, the, and the Avengers, which were like one of the classic early bands from there, right? So, 100%. Yeah. Well, so do you, you, your first show in SF was played on Negative Trend's gear? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, great band, too, right? Oh, so, incredible yeah. band. Yeah. Um, it's also the thing that you keep hearing, and this once again has come up from multiple guests on this podcast, is that DOA would come to town and just be on like a different gear. Like all these punk bands would be playing at like, you know, one speed and you guys would show up and just kick everyone's ass. And like, you know, is that from that first show that where you guys or the early show with the skulls where you guys are playing in front of bikers or like, why, what is that approach to music that you have where you just got to kind of leave it all on stage right from the get go? You're doing that. Yeah, I think that the, the skulls were like frantic, but we were a bit bit slower than. Uh, but when we got shit, when I got back to Vancouver in February '78 from Toronto, then I put out an ad in the Georgia Strait, and uh, <clears throat> the first guy who showed up to try out for drums was Randy Rampage, who's a, a left-handed drummer. So we jammed, and uh, you know he was okay, like uh, not not super great and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But then. Um, uh, then I got um, somebody told me, "Oh, hey, Chuck wants to try out," which was Dimwit's little brother, right? You know, Dimwit from the Skulls, right, and Layer of the Subhumans. And um, <clears throat> but when we were kids, we used to jam out in uh, Dimwit's garage, like we we're in high school, right, with our high school bands, which were like so terrible that not worth mentioning. Um, and uh, but Dimwit had his bunk, and Chuck would sit there and jam along with us, and nobody paid attention, but he played the bongos. Like where we're playing, yeah. And had, so I think that's where he developed this wicked, quick hand uh, thing with the, you know, just like the the fastest rolls uh, this side of uh, whoever, right? I don't, I don't know. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah this side of Shaughnessy or something like that, right? And uh, um, and so then I tried out Chuck, and I went like, wow, this guy's really good, right? You know, and he, I completely understood. 
punk rock. And then, then I thought about Randy. I thought, huh, oh, Randy really understands rhythm. He's a drummer. So I, I phoned up Randy. I said, hey, I got a drummer, but I, I can teach you to play bass. You want to be the bassist? And he said, sure. And so I got, we got together, rented a bunch of gear, um, and I taught Randy how to play bass. And then we were going. So DOA started out as like um, three drummers. But we were, uh, but I think getting at, at the, the answer to your question is we got a lot faster once we got Chuck. Like his brother Dimwood, his brother Dimwood was, was an incredible drummer, like a great, great drummer, but a more um, compare Hardcore 81 to War on 45, and you see the difference. That I mean, the drumming is great on both, right? But it's quite, quite different, right? You know, so, um, so. And that's what kind of gave us that zip. But the one thing I really remember is like, because we were like good pals with Black Flag and, you know, we keep exchanging uh, uh, notes about shows, right? And then promoters. So that when I see uh, Dukowski, uh, he'd go, oh, where have you guys been lately? I go, oh, yeah, we were out in uh, Ohio and um, played a bunch of shows out there. He said, it was, it was like, so I give him the number for the shows there. And then uh, I'd say, what about, uh, you know, this place? And he says, oh, well, this guy in Sacramento, don't go, don't play there. That guy's a complete rep. So we trade notes about where you got ripped off and where you got paid type thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So those guys were traveling like a lot. And so were we. So to me, a lot of these towns, like all throughout Canada and the United States, that the first punk rock bands they saw were either DOA or Black Flag. And when you came back there a second time, you could always tell which band was there first because the opening bands, the Black Flag had been there. The opening bands kind of sounded like Black Flag. The DOA had been there. The opening bands kind of sounded like DOA. <laughs> you could tell who had made their mark on the town first, I think, right? So. Absolutely. Well, Mike Watt was on the show recently, and he was saying that Black Flag completely got it from you. Like, they didn't really get that need to kind of travel and get up and go until you guys kind of came to town. And that was like the impetus for them. Yeah, I mean, we've been a little bit ahead of them because we just started traveling like in 79. We toured like, that was only like 10 shows, right? But, you know, we went, we played SF, we played Texas, we played Chicago, New York, Ottawa, Toronto, right? So, um, and then uh, we got really serious in 1980 because we had an album out. So, and we got a manager and uh, we went, okay, let's, we're going. And we bought a van. Uh, so we bought a van that, I think uh, the interest rates at that time were 22%. So we were paying a, a phenomenal amount for this van. And we didn't have money, but Randy's dad co-signed for the van, and we made the payments, and that's what's got that, uh, the blue bullet, we used to call it, that got us around all the early, <clears throat> for the first four years, right? So finally, the blue bullet was not so quick anymore, right? So, Well, no, it's funny because, like, you know, you talk about that, that period and that time. Like, I did a live show in Washington, D.C., yeah. Uh, with a bunch of different, you know, people from like, you know, the DC hardcore scene. And they all talk about this one show where you guys came and played and how that was just like the kick in the ass for the whole scene. Like the whole scene was like, okay, let's, let's get serious about this stuff now. Yeah. It's funny. Well, that's the same thing I got out of the Ramones when I saw them. I went like, oh, okay. That's, that's punk rock. So you got to have somebody that's like, and those guys probably going like, wow, this is like a, a band that's not famous, but they came 3,000 miles away to D.C. I totally remember that show because it was at the uh, something high school where like um, a bunch of the early people from the D.C. scene uh, went to that high school, like in uh, uh, Arlington, Virginia. And um, uh, when we were driving to it, we were all like, 
oh, fuck, we're playing at a fucking high school. It was kind of like, who booked this type? <laughs> it's one of those. And it turned out to be like this phenomenal show, right? So, because they're all, they, they had the energy and they went like, they're, they're ready for something. And I guess we were the something. Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, like, um, you know, and it was like that, like you're saying, that first tour where you guys played Texas, like, was that one tour and you did Toronto, Ottawa, and Texas in one go? I didn't know much about booking. I had three shows in Texas. Uh, you know, I just got on the phone. All of a sudden, okay, we got three shows. There's no money or anything like that. Yeah. And uh, I forgot the phone back in two other ones, and they got canceled because they never heard back from me. But <laughs> <laughs> so I learned something about booking at that point, right? So, but the the impetus for that was um, uh, uh, Rock Against Racism was a, a big movement in England at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're talking like this is 1979, right? And racial tensions were high in the UK. And uh, hey, surprise, surprise, they are again today, right? So, mm-hmm. but uh, that's another story. And uh, so <clears throat> we had these um, anarchist friends that said, hey, they're having a big Rock Against Racism uh, show in Chicago. It'd be a big outdoor thing, and Patty Smith's going to play. And we were like Patty Smith fans and went, yeah, we'd love to play a type thing, right? So we put on the first uh, Rock and Tracism show in Canada at the Smiling Buddha, and um, that was like the launch. And the next day we left, and we drove down to SF to Texas and got up to Chicago and played out, out outdoors. Uh, about 5,000 people showed up, and it was all like uh, like organizers and um, anarchists and political types and leftists uh, from all over the Midwest had come to this, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't know anything about us, but, you know, we had songs like Race Riot, The Enemy, World War Three, and uh, we just say the name of the song uh, before the before we play, which is good because nobody can understand what I'm saying anyways, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so I might as well enunciate what the song is actually called. And uh, and we got this following, and uh, people went, oh, that was great. Uh, we're down in Cincinnati, we put on a show for you there, or up in uh, Cleveland, or wherever, all these towns around the Midwest. And so when, so the next year, we're right back and start playing all these towns around there, right? On that first tour, who'd you guys play with in Texas? Do you remember? Or was it like punk bands or just random bands? Or- Ooh, um, it was a really famous place called Raul's. Which yeah, is right there. they're CBs. Yep. And um, you know what? I don't remember, but I do remember that we didn't have our stay. And um there's like five of us in this little tiny van with all the gear. Yeah. So it was like, it was like so small. So they're sleeping in that. And I went, I went, you guys are crazy. I'm going to sleep out in the park. Look at the bright, the stars of Texas. What's better than that? About three in the morning, this Texas rain shower. So I found out what Texas rain is like. And I was like soaked in about five minutes. <laughs> so I crawled back into the van like, oh, we're going to five of us like drowned rats in there right type thing right so um but i don't remember the, the bands or anything no i i can't imagine you i was just out of curiosity because it's just like you know that's i guess it's still like when everything's forming like now there's like you know you're still on the road you know what it's like now there's like a circuit it's kind of established but at that point you're really like kind of like cutting that trail yeah i mean there was and was just it really was um it was like trailblazing in that sense because people there were you had to get find somewhere to play, and it's like uh, it really was word of mouth. And uh, you know, and, and you know, hey, a lot of shows were booked by mailing letters. I don't know if people today can comprehend that, right? Like, hi, we're DOA, and we'd like to come and play in your town. What 
what day would work for you, right? <laughs> and you wait for a letter to get back, right? You know, because long distance phone calls were like fantastically expensive. Oh yeah. So, you know, and uh, so we weren't doing that. So we, we kind of booked stuff like that and just, you know, we went, uh, we were adventurous. I get that, Damien, that's really what it was. We were adventurous and we were going like, okay, uh, we realized we had a pretty good band and uh, it was catching on. So it's so like, why not go? Same, we went to England in 1981 too. We saw an ad in uh because we always read the English papers at the time, at music papers. And, uh, I uh, said, so, no, DOA would be opening for the Zeg Kennedys at the Lyceum, which is like a big place in central London, 3,000 people. Mm-hmm. And nobody had talked to us about it. So um, we had a manager by that point. So he phoned up, oh, yeah, we're DOA. We want to get the we'll confirm we're on the bill. And they wouldn't give us any money. So we just all saved up our money for uh, airplane tickets to London. And we played about three shows on our own, which uh, 20 people showed up at each because nobody knew us. And then we... We played uh, with the Dead Candies, and then uh, Jello's label, uh, the English part, put out a single and became single of the week and uh, the positivity DOA. And then, then that set up going up to Europe, to Europe like two years later, right? So, um, so it really was just being adventurous and you know, and good timing, mm-hmm. you know, which is like, isn't that always the way in music? There's lots of great bands and stuff like that, right? That never get anywhere, but you got to be. You got to be bold, and you got to be good, and you got to have some good timing too. Yeah, like I guess you're, you know, it's almost like you have to kind of create your own timing in a way as well. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, you make your breaks, right? You just um, if you sit back, wait for it, stay in your hometown. You know, odds are you're probably not going anywhere, right? You know, so you might be a local favorite, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not putting that down. But if you want to see, if you want to see the world, this is the way to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I guess like the other uh, place in Europe, I really wanted to talk to you about going to because you're one of the first bands that did this was going to Poland mm-hmm. on that first tour. Like, was that '85? You guys go or '84? Yeah, we went in '84. Uh, okay, and that's kind of what got the tour. Like I said, that big show in London with the DKs. So then we got known over there, and um, <clears throat> but then we got a letter from Poland it said, "Hey, yeah, uh, we're we promote shows in Poland. Uh, we heard about your." Right, because we'd written the song "General Strike." They'd heard about that because that single came out in '83, uh, and it started making the rounds. And people went, "Oh, General Strike!" Yeah, of course, the General Strike had happened in uh, Poland and martial law and the army taking over and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I said, "Yeah, uh, we can get you in here." But so we wrote back a letter, and we set up our first European tour around that. And we didn't know if we were going to get in. We went to the German embassy or the Polish embassy in uh, Bonn, Germany at the time and uh, got permits. And then uh, we drove to uh, through outside of Berlin, went to Berlin and then uh, went to the outside the wall and went to East Germany. And they were just like, "Uh, what the hell are you guys doing here? I said, well, we're on our way to Poland. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, the guy they were looking at, they couldn't figure out, like, who the hell are these guys? Are like uh, American subversors of the communist system or like, <laughs> something like that? And then uh, and they, were, they kind of wouldn't let us get, get through. And then uh, one guy had a little bit of English. And I said, you know, we're from Canada. We play rock and roll, right? And uh, the guy went, oh, Canada, PTO, PTO. And then, <laughs> then he made a motion like he had a really big gut. I mean, you know, uh, 
you know, Randy and Fred were like, you know, pretty heavy, right? So yeah, poorly guys. Uh, I, <laughs> so yeah, and then then the, he signed the papers and he let us through. <laughs> <laughs> so we so we got to Poland and um, it was crazy. We did like um, like four shows. We had the contact. So Youth Brigade had been there. Um, we were friends with those guys. Had been there uh, maybe two months before us, type thing. Okay. And, and so they were actually the first one. We were the second one. And I guess they've done okay. I mean, good band, of course, right? And uh, but they had this horrible incident where they they'd stolen some towels from the tourist hotel they were staying in because they put you up in nice hotels, right? Just mm-hmm. like, oh well, the band stay in the nicest hotel type thing, right? And um, they stole some towels. They got chased down outside town, thirty miles outside of uh, whatever the Polish town was, taken down by the police till they found the towels, arrested, and driving back, mixed, missed the next show. Something like that. You'll have to ask Mark or uh, Sean Stern about about that if you ever talk to him. Well, they've got to come back for a part two now for this one. Yeah. <laughs> we left that story out. So. Yeah, so we heard about that, and we went, okay, no stealing towels, right? Wow, yeah. <laughs> or, or anything that belongs to the Polish state, right? So, and, uh, uh, yeah, and it, it was like weird because we got um, the our manager, say, Ken, said, uh, well, you know what? It's really good. We're going to make 30,000 Zlotties. And we went, wow, that's pretty good. How much is that? And he went, figured out, well, it's 25 bucks US. I <laughs> 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 went, oh, okay. I'm not a better than nothing type thing, right? Yeah. And, uh, and we would play uh, at six o'clock um, uh, at night and just be the only band. Also, like Deserter didn't play or any of those bands? No, but that's why I met Deserter there the last day because they had been at the Warsaw show. Mm-hmm. So they came out, um, arranged this meeting uh, at the lobby of the hotel before we had to drive back to Germany and uh, said, oh, we saw the show. It was great, that kind of thing. You know, and we, uh, you know, we talked and laughed about the show and that kind of thing. And then uh, they said, but we can't get a record out because of the, the, the system, right? You know, they had that one single that got really famous uh, out and before the – the communist regime realized that was kind of an anti-government record. (laughs) (laughs) And they sold 50,000 copies in Poland or something like that. And, uh, and I had one of those records. I got one and uh, they said, can you get a record up for us? I said, well, he said, said, you, you have to smuggle the tapes out. I went, Oh, okay. Well, they're just cassette tapes. I put them in my jacket, but it was all kind of subterfuge, right? You know, you never know who's listening. And it was kind of true that way. There's lots of people, um, not as much in Poland, but obviously in East Germany, they would ride on their neighbors with the Stasi and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. People would just disappear, right? So, you know, uh, so it's, I kept them under wraps, didn't tell anybody, and I got back to um, got back to Canada, and I phoned up Tim Johanan uh, from Maximum Rock and Roll and said, hey, you want to put our record in this great band uh, called Deserter, right? And uh, he said, yeah, sure, that'd, that'd be great. But uh, the one thing, Joe, is that... Uh, you got to find a translator because nobody understands what they're saying because they're all in Polish. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went to these, a couple of different Polish halls uh, uh, in Vancouver, and um, and there's these old guys. And I had this cassette player and this uh, hardcore punk rock, and I played them about 30 <laughs> seconds, and they would start laughing. I go, that's not music. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I go like I need an interpreter. Can maybe you can listen to this interpret this for me, right? And uh, I got laughed out two or three halls by these <laughs> old guys, right? <laughs> okay, well, after you guys, right? So I found like a, a woman who's a UBC student who was a 
uh, teaching Polish and English type thing, right? So, and that, yeah, we got the record up for him. It was really cool. And it's like an amazing album. Like that, that Deserter LP is, is a classic. To this day, I finally picked up a copy, I guess four years ago, five years ago. And it's just like, I don't know, such an amazing document, but yeah, like you had to smuggle that out to make it possible. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool because we've got like, oh, we're smuggling stuff out of Poland, right? So, and, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, that that trip was great. We were in Gaslight. We got gas ration coupons. Uh, we went through uh, all the, the lineups in the stores and stuff like you lined up for cheese. You lined up uh, for bread. Then you got another lineup for whatever else you want. And uh and one time I lined up, I, I got beer, right? And um, uh, and was I opened up on the street because there hadn't been any beer there, right? So I thought, I didn't really need a beer. And uh, it was like the worst beer I'd ever tried in my life. Because, I mean, <laughs> the country was, like, poor because the system was, like, failing, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I said to uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now wife Laura, she was there with us. And uh, I said, taste this. Is this beer? Right. <laughs> And she went, I don't know. I, I can't quite tell. <laughs> so I gave it to Wojtek, who was our tour guide. And he went, oh, great. I love this. Oh, boy. <laughs> this guy really needs a Canadian beer, right? So, like, you know. Yeah. Anyways, right? Yeah. That was an incredible, uh, incredible trip. Were there, like, were there like a lot of punks at those shows? Or were there just like a lot of curious people out there to see? Or, or more like, curious. There's a few few punks, like say in Warsaw particularly, right? Because they yeah. had a scene there, right? And there, there were bands. But the other ones, we'd play at 6 o'clock. People seemed really into it. And it, um, they really liked it when we played General Strike, of course. They got that, right? And, um, and they had this other routine where I dressed up as like a Catholic priest. And they thought that was pretty funny, right? And this is a Catholic country, and uh, and we finished, and then they all they all looked like they were happy, but they wouldn't clap, and they started saying like, "Does anybody want to hear more of like an encore?" And they would some people went like, "Well, you guys jump around so much, we thought you were tired." So <laughs> <laughs> and we went, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Because uh, you guys went to so many different places and saw all these different scenes and all these different, like, you know, interpretations of hardcore at the different time. Uh, like, what was, what are some of the favorite places for you to play early on? Like, what were some of the, like, you know, internationally, like, you know, include Poland, include Italy, wherever? Yeah, Italy, I think, the, well, the end of the first tour in Europe in 84, um, we went and played, um, at the very near the end, we played in, uh, Another communist country was still Yugoslavia at that point. So we got a show in uh, um, in Zagreb in Croatia, what's now Croatia, and uh, one in Ljubljana, what's now what is now uh, Slovenia. And um, great shows like Out of Control. And then uh, we were playing, going to Milan uh, for the last show. And then the payment was they'd get our tickets back in England. And then we go back to. Uh, uh, go back to Vancouver from uh, London, right? So anyway, so we got to um, Milan, and this was really like the first, so middle, early 84, first big hardcore show in uh, northern Italy, and uh, put this place called, called Leon Cavallo Social Central, which is like this super famous squat uh, in Milan. Um, it's still there, I think. Yeah, it's gone through about four different uh, locations, because the city keeps kicking it farther out of the center type thing, right? So... Uh, but at the time, this was right in the center of Milan, and the city, the city hated it, the police hated it, and you know all that kind of thing, right? And uh, 
Um, but about 3,000 people showed up for the show, oh. right? Yeah. yeah, it was like out of control. There's like uh, three different swirling pits going on while we were playing. And uh, yeah, I guess the band play was like Crash Box was one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't remember. I don't, I'm not sure if like, uh, Negazioni or CCM. I'm not sure if CCM was started by that point. Okay. But they, they might have been on the bill. I've got an old poster somewhere, but it was uh, incredible. So that was like one of the top ones. We were just going, wow, that was great. Right. So. Yeah. Um, we played this really insane festival in China about um, six years ago. It was this outdoor uh, thing in Beijing, and um, we had to submit all like songs and lyrics to a censor board to get in. Yeah, and uh, so I sort of picked out like six really innocuous songs that we never play, we never ever play type thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and sent them over, and then. Uh, uh, of course, we didn't play them, and then uh, our tour guide said, "Oh, and it was a big outdoor festival, like about four different stages." And uh, and, uh, and my drummer and bass player go, "Well," and the tour guide go, "Well, be careful what you say, right?" So, and of course, we were up there, like you know, playing "fuck you" and "smash the state," and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as we got on stage, I forgot about all about this caution, right, type thing. And uh, uh, but there's people like. It was so like it was so windy for one thing that uh, like a Marshall cab blew over and just about broke our bass player's leg. Right? Yeah. I had to stand like uh, with my feet like way apart so I was good to actually sing. It was like so windy, and at the same time these these guys were had these banners uh, with um, different. Uh, Mandarin writing on it and stuff like that, or band logos and stuff like that, and uh, waving around the banners like four, or eight feet long, and they're up on people's shoulders. And then people were laying off these like super powerful like uh, rockets, <laughs> and we're thinking like, okay, if these banners can, uh, catch on fire, there's like five, six thousand people, it's going to be mayhem. Like It'll be a firestorm. <laughs> yeah, no, it's going to be like just uh, horrible, right? And, yeah. Yeah. How many times have you been to China? Because I think you guys went just before we went to China years ago. Yeah, you guys dealt with uh, Abe, I think. Yeah, uh, Abe was uh, their, our guy just after you went over. Yep, yep. So uh, three times. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, just actually, uh, I know this is called Turn Out of Punk, but when was the first time, because you guys put out the titular hardcore record, when was the first time you ever heard the term hardcore applied to punk music? Yeah, it was probably like late 80. We are in San Francisco and... Um, there's a magazine. It might have been called like uh, like Damage or something like that. Kind of like the Black Flag song. I don't know yeah. if it was taken from that or what. I'm not sure. But it was more like a regular music mag. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it said, oh, there's a new scene of bands. And uh, it's, it's hardcore, right? And uh, in, name the bands. And it said, you know, it's like DOA, um, Black Flag, uh, uh the Dills or whatever that you know it was like kind of a West Coast uh, slant on. I'm not, I'm not sure if they mentioned you know Bad Brains or Minor Threat or anything like that, right? But mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> and so and we we so this was late late eighty and we drove back and uh, our manager went like, wow, that's really like a great great term. That's a great term. So he said, uh, okay, and we we're starting to work on a new album, uh, like our second album. And he said, well, how about this for an album title, Hardcore Plus. Or Hardcore 81. And uh, we thought about it for a while, and we came up with Hardcore, hardcore 81 out of that, right? So and then, uh, yeah, so then we had kind of set it up, okay, well, we got to do a Hardcore Festival. So we 
set up two nights at this place. This was like February 81 in Vancouver. And we got up uh, Seven Seconds and Black Flag, and then we had um, a bunch of local bands like Bludgeon Pigs and stuff like that. Uh, and we did a two-night thing, so that was kind of, I, I would say that's the original hardcore festival. So, And then we did the tour after that. So that, you know, so we didn't take up the term, but, you know, I, I guess you could rightly say that we, we popularized it, right, type thing. Yeah, yeah, no, the titular record, right? Like that's the first one, and there's been Hardcore '93, Hardcore two thousand, whatever since. Like, yeah, yeah, it'd be a very different world if that was called Hardcore Plus too. You know? Yeah, no, no, it's like uh, it was good, and we thought about it for a while. It wasn't like an instant decision. Hardcore Plus, yeah, he says, yeah, it's more than hardcore. It's the, you know, because he was trying to give us a sell job on the the title, right? You know, was, yeah, you know. Well, no, I agree. Well, they didn't like that, right? Uh, uh, Joey, this, as I said, has been unbelievable, and I could talk to you forever. But would you come <laughs> back at some point for a part two? Yeah, absolutely. This is really fun. I'm uh, it clearly uh, a person who likes talking, and you're a person with a lot of questions, right? <laughs> I have a lot. My gosh, I haven't even scratched the surface. One question I have wondered uh, forever, and this is kind of like a weird one, is uh, was the lead singer of that band, The Air Cuts, actually British, or is that a fake accent he's putting on? Uh, which band? The Air Cuts. Radioactivity was their song. They're like the most obscure. Oh, Vancouver like in, band. Uh, it's on one of the comps. I think. I think it. I just have their seven inch. Uh, they had a seven inch, and it's Radioactivity on the A side, and I can't remember what the flip side is. But the guy has the most over the top British accent ever. <laughs> and I've always wondered: is he actually British, or is that is he faking that thing? You know what? I'm going to take the guess that he wasn't, because at that time. That. At that time, everybody in Vancouver was like faking an English accent because, okay, well, you want to be punk, you want to be cool, you got to sound English, right? So. Yeah, but you're blowing my mind and telling me there's Vancouver connections to Pill and the Pack, so anything's possible now. Yeah, no, I suppose so, right? So, yeah, that that I couldn't say for sure, but I bet it was fake. Uh, Joey, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, no, my pleasure. That's it. It's really fun. And uh, yeah, part two, any old time is good with me. Thank you, Joey, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Joey's going to be back for a part two at some point in the future. But we just don't know. We don't know when, but it's going to happen. And speaking of stuff that's going to happen, DOA has a brand new record called Treason that just came out. You can check it out. It's on Sudden Death Records. Um, I don't know if the vinyl's out yet. I know the CD's out. I'm sure vinyl's coming very soon. With everything that's going on, you know, it, it, it might take a while to get the vinyl out here. But it's going to be coming out. They've got a a new version of uh, fucked up Ronald fucked up Donald on there. And yeah, one of the greatest bands ever, one of the greatest bands ever, but certainly one of the greatest Canadian bands ever. Like who would you, who would you put above DOA? Like, you know, teenage head, you know, vile tones, like all that stuff's kind of like neck and neck, but there's no fucking way I'm putting rush above them. No way. No, not a chance. Oh, maybe Canadians. Uh, no, nah, I don't know. It's, it's debatable, but they're, they're right up there. Number one, DOA, number one. All right. Speaking of number one, we got one more episode to get to this week on the show. And and I kind of was like humming and hawing, like, who should I who should I put up for this one? Because there's a lot of people to get to on this thing. A lot of people to get to. But I, I wanted to make sure that it was someone special. So I went with someone that I waited forever to get on this show. I have been trying to make this happen for a long time. And he's been trying, too, on his end. It's just, you know, ships of the night pass in. We haven't had a chance to make it happen, but it's going to happen next week. Next week on the show, 
Tony Waste from Municipal Waste will be joining me. This is one of the ones. This is one of the ones, one of the reasons I do this show. There's just so much to get to with this guy. If you're a fan of Municipal Waste, chances are you know that Tony's one of the most charismatic, uh, just just cool, down-to-earth people doing this thing. But also, he's got some of the best taste and just wide-ranging taste and wide-ranging influences. And and we get into all of it next week on the show. And uh, I'm, I'm stoked for it. I am very stoked for it. Uh, that's it. Uh, that's it. Next week on the show? Later on this week on the show. That Tony episode's going to be coming up. Probably on the weekend. Because next week I got a huge week too. So, oh man. The hits just keep on coming here at Turned Out of Punk. The hits just keep on coming. And it's... And I'm going to keep making them because I just like enjoy punishing people and finding out new stories and facts and figures and all the like. So you keep listening. I'll keep recording and we'll keep connecting through a one-way connection where I talk to you and you listen. But it's you're connecting in some way, right? All right. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. You probably have a lot more uh, sitting around the house to do like I do as well. So uh, that's it. Um, go out there and make your own culture. Uh, please, please take care of the people around you that are vulnerable or, or, or need assistance right now. Um, stay safe, stay inside, sign your organ donor cards and, uh, that's it. I love you and I'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.